0: Welcome to Inside is Capital. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. Joining me today is Michael Green, Portfolio Manager and Chief Strategist at New York-based Simplify Asset Management. Michael was previously Chief Strategist and Portfolio Manager at Logica Capital Advisors and has previously held senior portfolio management roles with Thiel Macro, Ice Farm Capital, Canyon Partners, and others. He's a prolific researcher and writer, has a huge and popular following on Twitter, where he tweets as ProfPlum99, and Real Vision, where he shares his thoughts and industry contacts in his Mike Green and Conversation series. Michael has presented his proprietary findings focused on the ongoing shift from active management to passive approaches to audiences that include the Federal Reserve the International Monetary Fund, the U.S. Department of State, and dozens of other industry groups and associations. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Mike, it's an honor and a privilege to have you back. Before we get started, I want to ask you, what have you been working on lately and what's new with you?
1: Uh, Well, first of all, Pio, thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure to come back and chat with you. Um, So, you know, this is is a really interesting time period. Um, I think that we're seeing a combination of things that I've talked about in the past uh, begin to come to fruition We also have a really interesting economic puzzle sitting in front of us, which is this question of: Do we have the world's best telegraph recession, or is this actually spurious, based on the strength that we're seeing coming out of the employment market, et cetera? Um, You know, the quick answer is we don't know. In the face of that, I think it's it's very interesting how passionate people are in every direction, right, ranging from hyperinflation is upon us, to we have a deflationary bust ahead of us and a Great Depression, um, to you know, we're missing the opportunity of a lifetime to buy equities or the idea that we're going to all freeze to death as global warming fails to keep with our lack of access to fossil fuels. So there's just an awful lot of passion and debate that's making its way into the market that, in my opinion, is... An in interesting fashion, actually, not really manifesting itself in, in general here. I mean, the, the more interesting thing to me is, is that we see incredible correlation between Bitcoin and Tesla and Bed Bath and Beyond and various other meme stocks. Right, they're all behaving in a very similar fashion, suggesting that this has very little to do with individual insights. Right, this has much more to do with kind of the macro dynamics and the macro factors that are in play. And yet everyone is kind of convincing themselves that they're giving in a contrarian fashion, and I don't see a lot of evidence. Uh, so it's it, it's a really interesting time. I'd say I'm spending more time than usual trying to dissect the data that's coming out of um, Western government institutions. Many years ago, I think it was probably four or five years ago, it was suggested that the, um, the right approach uh, I forget who, who suggested this, but they ended up being very prescient, you know, the right approach was for Western investors to begin to think about things from an EM investor standpoint, right? Nobody actually pays any attention to the data that comes out of most EMs on a government basis, because we just know it's right. so deeply inaccurate. We don't pay attention to Venezuela's inflation numbers, we don't pay to Greece's employment numbers, even though they're slightly better. Uh, we certainly don't look to them as models of accounting probity. Um, you know so when when we're trying to understand stuff in EM, we have to first figure out if the data that we're looking at is correct and secondly, establish kind of broad thrusts, right? Because right. we just don't have the detail. In the West, we have giant institutions that are built to provide that data to us, and we diligently pay attention to the Bureau of Labor Statistics release of employment information, or the Department of Energy's release of energy data, et cetera. And the problem is, is when you inject as much volatility into the economy as we have over the past several years, the stability of those systems breaks down. And many of the modifications that were made historically to the data sets that we now see were actually designed to basically smooth out extreme information. There were, you know, we introduced things like the birth death model in terms of U.S. employment, precisely because we don't want to continually restate historical data and say, oh, guess what? We actually had new businesses emerge that weren't properly capped So we introduced something like birth death as an adjustment to that data series to try to smooth it out over time. But then when something super volatile, like a coronavirus pandemic, or changes in stimulus tied to um, collecting tax credits for employees or PPP benefits, et cetera, we have to expect that those data sets reflect that underlying change in the regulatory framework and that that is gonna skew all the data that we receive. Right? My sense is is that we're not doing a very good job of making those modifications. I can share all sorts of data around exactly these components, can be everything ranging from, oh my gosh, there's been a surge in you know um, self-employed incorporated businesses. That's indicative of a growing entrepreneurial surge. No, that's not what it's indicative of. Actually, that trend began in 2016 when it became a requirement for Uber drivers and others who participate in the economy to actually establish tax dynamics. Right. That was a, a written component. So we see this data. It's very clear if we actually go in and, and dig out from the data what the changes were and how that's impact. I'll share a, a just an extreme chart that i actually been playing around with um, today. So this is looking at the explosive growth in business applications um, that you've seen, right? This is the business right. formation data. Is um, this is the business application data that you see in the data sets that are affecting the way the birth data is reported. In 2021, in um, April, May of 2021, the Biden administration introduced the employee retention credit, which pays you up to $26,000 per employee for an incorporated business that is continuing to hire people. There's a lot of debate around the impact of this. look the cumulative access business applications for 2021 versus normal seasonality i personally detect a pattern i'm not sure if i'm the only one that can see this right but this seems very straightforward that a lot of the data sets that we're receiving have been influenced by these types of policy choices um understanding the the implications of that is critical in my view
0: so this basically shows that the businesses that were Applied for it was it was for the incentive. Hundred percent. Yeah.
1: I mean that that would be my interpretation of this. Now, I'm going to lay it straight out there. I'm not an academic researcher. The Boston Fed has attempted to address this. They did not approach it in this way. They did a lot of what I think are are incorrect analyses. To me, something like this is a very straightforward way of presenting (laughs) the data that illustrates exactly what I would have expected. That could be confirmation bias, but I don't think so.
0: Yeah, not a coincidence.
1: I, I it, it, would, yeah. it would be one hell of a coincidence, I think <laughs> is the actual term for it. Right. So that's the sort of stuff that I'm trying to pay attention to. And unfortunately, our policymakers, I think, are um, much less creative in their evaluation of that they're yeah. receiving. As a result, we're hearing an awful lot of data from um, you know, individuals like Chris Waller of, you know, saying, well, everything's fine. I think it's great. You know, there's no problems associated with it. And I'd being thrilled. If I was wrong about the data in 2023, as, I, as, as wrong about the data in 2023 as I was in 2021 about the inflation data, because um, it'll be super easy just to cut interest rates and fix the problems. Well, again, it, you know, every recession, every bear market that we've gone through in the past couple of decades, we hear this language of the pushing on a string because it doesn't actually work that easily. Right. So yeah, this is the sort of stuff I'm trying to pay a lot of attention to right now. And on top of that, of course, there continue to be the dynamics of the continued growth of passive investing influence that that has on markets, et cetera. So you asked me what I was working on. That's, that's what I'm working on. These days. <laughs> really trying to understand this stuff.
0: Yeah. I think, I think that, uh, that, that's sort of a uh, good layup to what we are going to talk about, and um, which is uh, to start uh, the economic cycle. Um, having come from the options world and having held several leading roles as an allocator of capital, you've become an extraordinary observer of probabilistic outcomes, and you've become well-known also for... Your meticulous thinking on on markets and investment strategy. Have you come to a determination on, on whether or not the Fed is acting on poor data? And secondly, you know, do you have a, a probability for when or if or both when the Fed will, uh, if the Fed will pause or pivot, or if they're going to continue um, as well, as you know as yeah, Powell. Yeah
1: along this path. Um, so yeah. a couple of quick things. One, you know, I think it's been very interesting. You've seen the inflationary data, inflation really on a shorter term time horizon. If I look at three month annualized or I look at the last six months, et cetera. The evidence is actually fairly straightforward that the inflationary pulse that it hit us before is now going away or is gone. Um, in goods in particular, we're now looking at significant negative inflation, what's called deflation. Um, In many types of services, we're seeing a dramatic slowing of inflationary conditions. Rents, for example, are now down for the second consecutive month, um, even though they're up significantly on a year-over-year basis. And what we don't know, and I just wanna always emphasize that part, is we don't know what's going to happen next, but if we indeed end up in a recession, we indeed end up with the surplus It appears that we're going to have from a combination of single-family homes being purchased and contracted for rental purposes, and a continued and significant surge in uh, multifamily construction adds far more units uh, relative to uh, single-family home construction, at least on a a dollar basis. Are we going to continue down the path of those declining? It appears that the answer is very much yes. Now the question becomes, what does the Fed respond to? And so you mentioned the focus on the options market. One of the things that I tried to emphasize for people is you can use the structure of the options market to see what the market's paying attention to. For the past several months, the market has been placing huge premiums on the CPI prints, effectively saying, this is what the Fed is paying attention to. We now have two consecutive months in which the CPI numbers came in. Basically, you know, slightly worse actually than headline ex- expectations, yeah. but was largely discarded, and the volatility on that was faded significantly. It's becoming increasingly difficult to identify and isolate situations that cause the markets to move in a significant fashion. Um, and I, I, I would just suggest that that you know what that's telling you is is that the markets largely think the inflation story is over. Now it just becomes a question of does the Fed actually start to follow through with cuts at some point? My fear, as it relates to all of this, is is that by hiking as aggressively as it did, what the Fed actually did was destroy demand, not so much on the consumer side but on the investment side. The evidence of that is relatively robust. There are yeah. some areas where you're seeing evidence of increased expenditures, but certainly relative to what we would have expected, you know. Rig counts are going down, not up. We're, you know, despite the fact that everybody's worried about an oil short, we're seeing evidence of non residential construction, particularly in commercial real estate, is being absolutely hammered, et cetera. The reason that I highlight that is the fear that I have is, is that the Fed has basically pushed through a solution that may contribute to deflationary conditions over the next year. But as we emerge from the recession, ultimately expose us to the same shortages, if not worse, than we had going into the risk. So I think what's unfortunately about to happen is, is that we've introduced volatility into the system. You see this with the extreme you know, extreme levels of the interest rate index, the move, for example. They just say that um, you know, they've made the problem worse. And that's largely what you would expect, right? And if you think about as yeah. the, the person who's supposed to take away the punch bowl, And then you add in repeated errors as they right continuing to simulate in 2021 instead of reducing stimulus in the face of things like the erc that i just highlighted um and now trying to slam on the brakes in an economy that's already slowing all you're doing is is increasing amplitude of the moves become a pro cyclical volatility contributor as compared to a volatility reducer my gut tells me we're going to wake up and find that you know that that's what our world looks like over the next couple of years
0: so in, the, in that respect you're the, and and at the same time the narrative of course is that is that the Fed is uh, that the inflation story is over and that the Fed will turn dovish or there's an expectation or a hope that the Fed will will pivot and, and become dovish Is that likely? I mean, what is the likelihood of the Fed? Well, so that's the the way the market's behaving, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, let's just run through the math. Right. So first, the Fed has to slow the hikes. Yeah. Right. And the Fed has to decide that they're going to stop the hikes. Then the Fed has to decide that they're going to reverse the hikes. And this is before we even begin discussion around QT, although they have indicated that they're now beginning to consider separating those two, that they're willing to consider policy uh dispersion in terms of the underlying dynamics right they've resisted the idea of putting you know pressing the brake and the gas at the same time that's been an area criticized sounds like they're starting to reconsider that which i would consider to be a relative positive um but exactly like in 2021 where there was an element we're going to display conviction right it wasn't quite george bush read my lips stuff you know Powell was very much as late as November of 2021 we're not going to be hiking interest rates for a long time right maybe a little earlier than that let's i think the last time he said that was probably September of 2020. Yeah. man if you listen to the fed you got destroyed right so what's happening now well the big difference is is that listening to the fed would basically involve you know saying okay, you know i'm not going to buy bonds maybe you won't get destroyed by not buying bonds it strikes me that if anything that the, that the market is certainly telling you that the fed's going to be forced to respond to it and i know anything about the history they'll wait until the last possible moment and then overdo it and then we'll go through the whole process all over again
0: well yeah they don't want to be the fed that certainly doesn't want to be too early and i mean well, they're almost it, always too late they, they, they
1: almost, by definition, have to be. Right? Yeah. They don't, You know. They were to truly be proactive. They were to truly decide that they were going to start tightening when you know people are starting to get boisterous at the party. In other words, taking away the punch bowl. The political outcry would be extreme. We saw this under the Trump administration, where the economy was clearly tightening. There were clearly elements of inflation beginning. to We were seeing wages already start to rise. And in many ways, I just would suggest that what happened in 2020 and 2021 was an extension of that. We started the recession. We didn't allow it to finish. We then exploded people's purchasing power. And guess what? We found out that the shortages that had begun in 2015, 2016, 2017 began to manifest themselves in earnest relatively quickly. Again, I just, you know, I I think we know that the institution itself Lacks the courage to be in a truly contracyclical fashion.
0: So, uh, Mike, are we are we actually in in or about to go into a recession?
1: So, my analysis would suggest that we are in a recession already. All right. Um, there's a couple of unique aspects to this recession that, in many ways, are almost the mirror image of the
0: 19s. What I find interesting in in advance of our discussion. Is that the market seems to be on a hair trigger about what the Fed will do, and so right now the market's behaving very positively or has been positively has been you know rallying um, I'm curious to know if that's short covering, especially you know the behavior of tech stocks the last few days yep, and um, you know that. So all those shorts that were out there on technology are covering because of the Fed sentiment. I I certainly, I I can't, I have a hard time believing that it's investors coming in and bottom fishing. Um, And, you know, especially given the year that it's been. And so the market seems to be behaving as though it expects the Fed to pause um, and maybe even, you know, maybe even pivot. And, I, you know, your, your point's well taken, too, about the amount of time that it will actually take for that to happen, even, in you know, this, if the circumstances present themselves, how long it will take for the Fed to, you know, cover each step of its actions, you know, slowing down the, slowing down the rate hikes, stopping the rate hikes, and, and then actually instituting rate cutting, you know, how many months are we talking about if it was to happen today? You know, if the indications came today, how long would it actually take the Fed to to turn around? Yeah, I mean, uh, the the quick
1: answer is, it depends on the severity of what comes next, right? The markets were to crash, if we were to see a severely adverse and would respond relatively quickly, it's very hard to expect the Fed to respond aggressively when you're seeing, you know, metrics like financial conditions ease and just, you know, remember what's incorporated in financial conditions is literally an expression of, you know, if I look at the GS model, for example, the credit spreads and the VIX, right? Those are the two yeah. components that really contribute to financial conditions. Both of those, are, you know, the VIX has fallen and credit spreads have t- Um So everyone is convinced that everything is fine. I wanted to show this chart very quickly here. Yeah, please. You know, one of the things people spend an awful lot of time thinking is this question of how, how um, can the unemployment story? One of the things that people forget about recessions that we've seen recently is that the severity of that recession is often a function of who is trying to get into the job market as much as it is who's already in the job market. So the story of the 1960s and 1970s, where you saw rising unemployment, even in the face of inflation, that was on the back of an incredible surge in the number of possible employees coming in through the baby boomers, rising labor force participation for women, um, aging of the baby boomers who were born basically starting in 1945. By 1970, they were hitting 25 years old, starting to meaningfully enter the labor force. That, of course, then contributes to a rising number of entrants. The millennials were an echo boom, exactly as we described, and that happened to hit in the aftermath of the 2008 recession. And as a result, we had all the stories about underemployed millennials who were college graduates, et cetera. That's now going away. We're watching that dynamic retreat, very low rates of labor force growth. That has all sorts of negative implications, but it also means that unemployment less likely to rise to the levels that it did in the global financial crisis. Instead, this is probably going to look a lot more like 2000 and 2003. Recession. Really, that started in 2001. And, you know, maybe we'll see five, 6% unemployment. My pushback to that sanguine view, however, is my big fear is, is that we're going to lose a lot of people are going to have a very extended period of unemployment as a result. And yeah. that, unfortunately, is a recurring pattern. There's been a lot of excitement articulating, you know, well, the layoffs that have occurred in tech, um, people have gotten hired back almost immediately. That's inevitable at the start of the recession. Once it begins to kick in and people suddenly start saying, oh, maybe I should hold off on hiring because maybe business is going to slow down, that reflexive dynamic, once that really starts to kick in, becomes harder and harder. And the other thing to remember is is that those technology employees tend not to be general purpose. So, right. like I can I can hire a gardener, and they tend to be general purpose. I can hire a factory line worker or a steel worker. They tend to be general purpose can be assigned. You know, the union would allow people to be assigned to different locations. Period. If I have a, you know particular expertise in programming language and voice recognition software or um, image recognition for Facebook, my skills are fairly narrow and fairly defined and my employment expectations in terms of compensation are likely quite high. And the data suggests that under those conditions, what we're most concerned about is the duration of unemployment that emerges. And that's right, in, in the aftermath. And that, that's, I think, exactly what we're going to see. We've seen every single cycle have higher and higher levels of, um, high, you know, longer and longer periods of unemployment. Looks like we're going to do the exact same this time around.
0: Yeah, the, the Fed is, is basically not paying attention to all the data or not enough data. They're not looking at, they're not looking deeply enough at the data. And they're acting on a very sort of uh, superficial Set of data, they're not understanding that they're creating the problem. They're creating a bigger problem than they're solving. Um, Well, I think uh, so. So I think there's two separate components there.
1: One, I don't want to imply that the Fed is doing you know, it's not like the researchers at the Fed are intentionally doing a bad job, right? They're doing. Yeah, no, they think they're doing a great
0: job, (laughs) right? They're they're
1: doing the best that they can. And there are very legitimate reasons why they could disagree with my analysis, for example. Right? Right. Um, I don't... Economics is a social science. It's not a science. I can't run repeated multiple experiments to test to see what happens if I introduce the Employee Recovery Act under normal conditions versus post-pandemic. There's no way to run that experiment. Um, there's some clever attempts at ways to do stuff like that, but you, you're never going to get there's also just a very deep fundamental difference, I think, in the way that macroeconomists, in particular, approach markets, and the way that I tend to approach. Them. Um, we tend to, we we tend to approach things from the standpoint on a macro side, as everything's an aggregate. The workers are, are changeable. What I care about is unemployment, right? In in you know all capital letters, you mentioned that you watched the Ben Hunt example. Ben yeah. Hunt is famous for using that type of dynamic right you know bitcoin and air quotes or unemployment you know or it's the economy stupid sort of stuff right
0: the performative Um, stuff yeah right and and so
1: unemployment is one of those things that is by definition performative in in many ways because if you're not unemployed you don't really care right you care (laughs) there's the expression you know it's it's a recession when your neighbor loses their job it's a depression when you lose your own we all care about our own job and what's going to happen to us. Right. Um, unemployment, as I mentioned, has unique characteristics to it. If I have a very esoteric degree and a specialty in one particular area. I don't actually expect to be frequently unemployed, but when I'm unemployed, I can be unemployed for years. right? On the flip side of that, if I have a high school education and I work as a grocery clerk, I can expect to be unemployed a lot because various changes in purchasing patterns and any form of economic slowdown are likely going to reduce demand for my services so i'm used to moving in and out of unemployment but i don't expect to be unemployed for a very long period of time right those two simple differences can have very meaningful changes in how you want to construct policy and our economy by and large has moved from one in are generally low skilled with general application to their, to their education and skill set to very specialized where the, the latter is much more important. you screw up and destabilize that very specialized economy, the implications can actually be much worse even as you feel protected because people you know accumulate surplus under that model for a variety of reasons. I mean, this, again, the simplest one is if I'm getting paid a lot to be the um, voice recognition engineer or the um, you know, troublesome COVID reporting engineer at Twitter, I'm getting paid a lot. It should theoretically save a lot of money. I can look down my nose at people who accumulate more than you know, a couple of weeks worth of emergency funds. Right. But part Pardon. of that is because I recognize that the surplus that I'm accumulating is unique and very and, and potentially required because I'll have this long period of unemployment. We don't tend not to take those things into consideration when we're designing these policies. There's a very real chance that the Fed is destabilizing. As they're, yeah, yeah.
0: they're they're underestimating the disinflation that's. Well, built, I, I, yeah. I would
1: suggest that they're underestimating the pressure that can be created by causing disruption in an economy with those characteristics.
0: Interesting. Um, I I was I you know. I thought it was interesting when Eric you spoke to who you spoke to recently, mentioned that you know the economy was already in a state of disinflation just prior to the breakout of the war in the Ukraine, and that that was a, a, a disruption that 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 disrupted. Uh, the economy largely in the form of in, by, by introducing uh, um, you know as an exogenous event a substantial amount of inflation because of the disruption that it was causing yep and so I wonder i mean now that that 's all you know but now that the the Ukraine conflict is pretty much baked in, I wonder are there any other Wildcards that could delay the Fed from standing down or pausing, and sub- subsequently cutting. Is there is there anything in there? Like I, I think there's been some talk about China reopening as a potential wildcard and inflationary inflation volatility uh, wildcard that could further delay plans at the Fed if there is plans at the Fed of pausing?
1: Well, I I mean, the the quick answer is, if the Fed chooses to pay attention to it, then of course. Yeah. If it actually occurs, then of course. China at least indicates off the top of its, um, China indicates that its population has significantly increased its net cash savings. Deposits are theoretically up. That creates conditions under which they were to truly reopen and liberate um, the individual members of their society to do what they wanted to do, we could very well see a surge of purchasing activity emerging from the Chinese. Um, I'm very skeptical of both that data and of the reality of that being allowed to happen. But you absolutely have to consider it. And I think Eric brings up a really, really valid point by highlighting the dynamics of Ukraine. We almost certainly would have seen inflation retreat much earlier had it not been for Russia's invasion of Ukraine right I personally fail to see how Russia's invasion of Ukraine has anything to do with. US monetary policy at least in the traditional sense. Um, and as a result, why would we react to it by hiking interest rates I mean let's just let, let's stop and think about the stupidity of this. We are in proxy war with the Ukraine and we are doing everything in our power to raise the cost of financing any activity that we're engaged in from a government standpoint. It's just absurd, it really is. When we went into World War II to hike interest rates, to try to slow the economy down so that we would reduce inflationary pressures because they absolutely existed. No, of course we didn't. Nor did we in World War I, nor did we in any other period in history. I mean, this is a really unique, exceptionally strange, that I would liken in many ways to our response to COVID, where we know the right protocol for how to handle a novel infectious respiratory disease. We actually know how to do that. You yeah. isolate the vulnerable, you protect right. those members of, our, of the population, and you encourage everybody else to be thoughtful in going about their daily lives. Nowhere in the rule books does it say you shut down the economy. Likewise, when you're fighting a war, please find me where it says in the rule books to hike interest rate, because
0: you can't. Yeah. So, Mike, if if, if it wasn't for uh, the Ukraine conflict, the, you know, Russia invading the Ukraine, would inflation have, you know, would we have had inflationary volatility? Would Would the Fed's actions have been... Like if it wasn't for the war, what do you think? Do you think that we would have had a bout of inflation, resulting from supply chain disruptions that were already happening prior to the Ukraine conflict? I mean, would the Fed have would the Fed have been, um, you know, given the impetus to hike if there wasn't a war in the Ukraine? So if you if you if you take the war out of the picture, like it didn't happen. How much um, of were, you know? How much of so, the so
1: first? I think the counterfactual is very. Like, you're asking me for a counterfactual. It's really hard to see with that. Yeah. Um, the quick answer is: I believe we would have had much less inflation. Although I think that most of that has already resolved itself. <clears throat> okay. You see that so, in oil prices having retreated. Natural gas prices, for the most part, it's had a longer-term impact. Europe has had here in Japan as well, where they. For LNG, um, with Europe, those become issues. In the United States, it has some impact because the natural gas that was stranded in the United States is now available for export or increasing available for the export. That raises prices for U.S. citizens with that surplus being transferred to the Europeans, Asians, and to a lesser extent or to a greater extent to energy companies. Um,
0: so is, is, it, is, is, yeah. Is it correct to say, then, um, that that your opinion is that the Fed has overreacted, completely overreacted?
1: I think the Fed has completely overreacted, yes. OK. Uh, and and you know, to be fair, I think yeah. that, um, if, I'm be- if I'm being completely fair to this, the Fed It had no way to overreact or underreact given the magnitude of the changes. Right. Like one of the two was going to happen. um, simply because so much volatility has been introduced, right? We had a global pandemic in which, in a totally unprecedented manner, we shut down the world's economy. How do you respond to that? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'll just be really straightforward. I don't know the right way to (laughs) respond to that.
0: I mean, under uh, normal, yeah. I mean, all on its own, without any intervention, that would have been a completely deflationary bust. Correct. Right. So, so there's the overstim. There's the stimulus. There's an overstimulus response, fiscal stimulus response, money being put into everybody's bank accounts, companies yep. companies being funded for staying open, and running their staff out of their homes, you know, the stay-at-home economy, all of that. Um, But to what degree, so, so, and then, so what you're saying is that that fiscal stimulus, the over-stimulus that was provided during the epidemic, um, during the pandemic, was, has already, was largely working itself out. I mean, there's there's almost no
1: question that that is true.
0: Yeah, and that's that's largely that's evidenced by the savings rate. Yeah, well, the collapse in the savings rate after the collapse in the savings rate. So, so basically, I mean, every you know Americans, uh, uh, you know, uh, American North American citizens aren't sitting on bank accounts flush with cash right now. From no,
1: Americans are not sitting in bank accounts flush <laughs> with that. Um, there is a sub-segment of American population that is yeah. sitting on bank accounts flush with it tends to be the sub-segment of the U.S. population that was able to profit either through accepting PPP loans that were then forgiven or right. taking advantage of things like the employee retention credit to radically lower their costs. We've seen the corporate sector and those that are tied to that benefit tremendously. Now we're seeing the reverse side. Of
0: so I, 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 want, I want to get to a, a point where it feels like the market or those of us in the market, I, you know, whatever, you, however you want to define that. I mean, we are the market, right? And mm-hmm. um, that we believe in the the paradigm that bad news is good news—that we believe that a recession will lead to lower interest rates. Ultimately, that the the Fed will cut in the you know once they have the evidence that we're in a full-blown recession uh, of some kind, whether it's a deep one or a shallow one or mild one, um, that the Fed will cut. But the circumstances of the recession is not good news. So, so, I mean, investors look at the equity market, and they think automatically that, you know, if we return, if we return to a lower rate environment, from the terminal rate of 5% to some lower rate, that that will be favorable for equities. Correct? Is that is that the the C view? well it, it's not my view but um <laughs> but there, there there seems to be a positive uh, there seems to be a positive outlook from the bad news that i would, I would if, just
1: say that that's a i mean that's a function of narrative being developed yeah. in response to out like markets of right. the, the russell 2000 has not declined since 2021 basically uh, 2022 i'm sorry yeah um basically gone sideways the many of the junk-oriented companies, um, those that are heavily exposed to high-yield debt, uh, have gone sideways you know, since the start of the "quote-unquote" bear market that we've experienced. Um, you know, and we've seen prices generally favorable and positive on a year-to-date basis. You know, just to toss simple examples out. You know, the Russell being up somewhere in the neighborhood of seven percent a year we have to construct a story that explains it. otherwise right. we're, we're nihilists that's i mean that's just the way the human brain works we have to be able to explain why something occurred using something that looks kind of like tax so if the markets are up we tell ourselves oh that's because you know um the fed is going to have to respond Rates are going to have and therefore that's positive and
0: that that's going to relieve the pressure on the carrying costs Right. I, I, let
1: me flip that on your on, on its head for a second and say, yeah. I don't think that has anything to do with carrying costs have continued to rise, the cost of margin has become increasingly difficult, and we're not seeing any, any evidence of a return to levered investments in stock markets. We're seeing, new I wrote about this in my tier one alpha note earlier, you know, the dynamics of margin are not confirming the increase that we're seeing in the rise in securities. What is happening is, is that the increase in interest rates are no longer affecting the bond market first gotten far enough into this process that the bond market is basically able to go sideways. All of a sudden, that means that if I'm running a portfolio that is balanced bonds and equities, I don't have to worry about selling equities every time bonds go down so and maintain the balance in my portfolio. Right. I just told you there's no fundamental signal in my model of the world. Which which I understand makes me sound a combination of insane and dismissive and everything else. But I simply think that's the way the world works. If you're an investor in a Vanguard target date fund, did at any point you call up your advisor and say, you know what, I really want to increase my allocation Oh does it automatically. And it does it on very simple rules that are set in place already. We've seen all this behavior built into the response fund. And so, you know, forgive me when I'm dismissive when people say, you know, well, here's all the reasons why it's happening. It's like, nah, nah, I don't really buy. It.
0: Yeah, so all these trades that are happening, a lot of trades that are happening in the market are programmed. A lot
1: of the trades are programmed, and then another batch of trades are forced in response to those programmed trades. So if I'm running a short book and I happen to own a name is thinly traded, possibly overshorted because everyone is extremely confident that it's going to go to zero, let's call it Bath and Beyond, for example. That stock can go up 500 percent as i'm forced to cover into a market in which very few people are going to sell them yeah and,
0: that's mean, what, and we've and, and seen
1: that we, we've seen exactly that anyone yeah. who's holding tesla at 400 is not suddenly on the basis of business prospects to decide to sell to you at 100 right they're like <laughs> their, their, their view we've seen this in all the headlines over and over again like This is the buying opportunity of a century. Now, admittedly, I don't have any money left, but at least I'm not going to sell my Tesla shares to you. Well, if I need to cover my Tesla shorts and nobody wants to sell to me, then what happens to Tesla prices? It goes up as Tesla prices go up. What does that cause? The person who might have a little bit of extra money left, 85 bucks didn't deploy that into Tesla at 100 said I'm not selling at 125. They're suddenly saying, see, I told you Tesla was fantastic. I'm going to buy. And I think that largely explains the behavior we're seeing.
0: And how much of how much of the behavior of the equity market is a reaction to what looks like smart money moving in and out? It looks like I mean, I'm just, I'm just talking about the illusion, like when you see technology, you know, tech stocks rising in the last few days you know off off the bottom Um, not the bottom but off the bottom Uh, you know the narrative coming out of the networks out of the news you know the financial news networks is is oh, tech stocks are rallying today you know that that somebody came in and did some buying but they're not necessarily identifying it as short covering because because there was a turn in sentiment on Friday yeah, I
1: mean, I, I you know, I'd say that there's think the, the right way to say it. We always need a story. Yeah. Human beings remember for thousands of years, we believed a story, some small fraction of the U.S. population still does, that the Earth was flat, it was a disk, and that the sun rose in the sky because a golden god rode his chariot, you know, with fire-breathing horses across the sky on a daily basis, Right. We believed that type of stuff for thousands of years. So for me to turn around and say to you, why are you surprised when I tell you that people make up stories for why things go up? Because it sounds dismissive to say something as absurd as the buyers were more aggressive than the sellers, right? (laughs) Like that just feels silly, feels that I haven't done my homework, but that's what actually happened. And so the aggressiveness of that buying plays in, is a short being forced to cover. That's about the most aggressive buyer that you can possibly find because right. they don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. They don't want to. Do it. Oh my God! I, a options market maker is a very aggressive, non-economic player. They could care less what the actual value of f and beyond is. They just want to make sure they're collecting the premium. That you're paying for that option so they will delta hedge their book on a regular basis the stock starts going up their short calls guess what they have to do buy shares yeah they stop and check the 10k of bed bath and beyond and go do a field trip to the stores and say you know gosh it looks like they've really got a fantastic surplus of fluffy <laughs> turkish towels no they would never do that they'd say damn it just delta head yeah and so that's the behavior that is driving markets today in my analysis. Now, does that mean everybody's behaved that way? No, of course yeah. not. Super smart individuals that I know who really dedicated and hard work on the fundamentals absolutely believe that it gives them edge over normal investment. Right. It's just a question of, is that edge enough to offset the costs associated with the individual security risk? The evidence is no
0: so what's your mike having you know having said all that what 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 because we didn't i didn't actually ask you the question but what is your out what is your actual outlook for equities broadly and are there any segments of the equity market that you do like uh, either from a factor standpoint or sector standpoint
1: yeah so so it's interesting i mean i I i just took off my positions in emerging markets and I'm now um, really for the first time in my portfolio is running what I would describe as broadly a net short portfolio. I'm not totally net short. Okay. I'm skewed in that direction, more of a credit than anything else. Um, I think that we're going to have a meaningful profit reception. Most, I think that the um, economic conditions are much worse than people think from the headline and unfortunately, for reasons that I just shared with you guys, things like um, the change in unemployment tied to entrance I just think a lot of the data sets that the Fed is looking to to provide them with guidance are going to lag even more severely than they have in the past. So there's ignoring weakness in the housing market because it continues to see strength in the employment market. So then in the employment market, I think, is I, I think the technical term for it is just bullshit. Um, don't think we're actually seeing that. If we're looking at things like full employment using the household survey, which is proven more accurate in most turning points, we haven't seen full-time employment grow at all. Right, Still sitting at 2019 levels, despite the fact that the population has expanded, the labor forces, et cetera. Right? The rates of unemployment, while low for those with college degrees, is roughly 50% higher than it was prior to going into the pandemic, and roughly double the level that it was going into 2008 per Again, those who have college degrees tend to experience longer periods of unemployment once they become unemployed. So anything, the risks that I see around this are that we have shortages in traditional jobs that have driven unemployment, whether those, you know, the low skilled jobs, the line workers, et cetera, we can't find those people. That's a genuine shortage. We see this right. in data sets that look at the difference in what's called the beverage curve, I'll actually pull up a chart and show it to you guys in a second. Um, we, we have a messed up system that's likely to lead to a two-speed economy, but the ultimate answer to that is if we force this issue, we'll end up with an economy at a lower node, effectively a lower equilibrium, not that there really is ever equilibrium in an economy, but you know we'll end up in a worse place than we otherwise would would have needed and that that upsets yeah there's needless loss of human capital and human potential when those conditions emerge
0: so overall the long-term fundamentals of the economy will deteriorate to a lower to lower lows because
1: the policy choices we're making now appear designed to send us in that direction or designed as the wrong term, but appear likely to send us in that direction. On the flip side of that, I'm also going to say, though, so just like if you looked at the US economy in the late 19- 1850s, right? So the discovery of oil at Spindletop is just about to occur. We've suddenly discovered that there's an alternative source of energy that we call oil versus coal, or whale oil, or, you know, et cetera, for, you know, lighting lamps engaged in lubrication and everything else. All of that was directly ahead of us, and we would have looked at the economic conditions and said, "Oh my God, they're terrible! They're so terrible! We're gonna, you know, tear us ourso- tear ourselves apart at the seams, on a country basis. We're gonna lose six hundred thousand people in a population that, you know, that would equival- that would be the equivalent, I believe, today. I think the population that was about thirty five million. So we're talking somewhere around six million people would have been killed in the equivalent of the Civil War. Right. Oh my God, this is the worst thing ever." followed by one of the most incredible growth stories in history. I think there's actually something kind of interesting along those lines. I'm looking at innovations that are occurring in areas like automation, in things like um, artificial general intelligence, or in particular, these large language models, et cetera, that are suddenly introducing the prospect of force multipliers that allow individual human beings to do things that they could have never imagined doing before. Right. My wife is a teacher. I'm trying to encourage her. She works uh, with special needs, and I'm actually trying to teach her to incorporate, encourage her to incorporate things like ChatGPT into lesson planning. Because for yeah. the first time, you're looking at a situation where a kid who has a genuine learning disability actually has the potential to produce a great essay.
0: Right, just by just by a few prompts. <laughs> just by prompting yeah. appropriately.
1: Now you have to ask yourself, what is the objective? Is the objective to take? A- that has an 85 IQ, and I'm not uh, implying that IQ to the vast majority of our students, I'm just giving the example, is the objective to take the kid with an 85 IQ and turn them into somebody who on their own can write paper from somebody who has the equivalent of 115 or 125 IQ? Well, if that's your objective, you're an idiot. Because you can't. But suddenly I give you a tool that allows you to do it. Right go back 200 years in history, if I needed to move a very heavy metal bar, who did I need to have? I needed to have the strongest person that I could find on the unemployment line. Now if I want to move a really heavy metal bar, I get a crane. And the person who's sitting in the crane doesn't have to have any physical strength whatsoever. So we're talking about introducing those same sort of capabilities on the intellectual side that allow knowledge workers to expand dramatically raise the output potential for everybody and that's what living standard increases are all about
0: yeah it's a, it's a, it's it's actually i mean you you know bringing up chat gpt it's it's remarkable i mean what it's able to do in terms of you know like for example if you're a student and you don't know where to begin you know where you're stymied and you don't know where to begin you know writing an essay at the very minimum, you could ask it to produce an outline for you, or, or you I mean at the and at the maximum, you could ask it to write the whole thing for you, and then, and then work off that. It's it's a it's it's an incredible, it's both scary and and fascinating at the same time. Well, you
1: know? I, I, it 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 is. It's both scary and fascinating. But encourage you to just change your language slightly, and yeah. it's not incredible what Chat GPT can do. It's incredible what we can do with what Chat. we can
0: do with it. Exactly, yeah.
1: I, I, I think it's really important that people embrace that. I mean, just stop and remember, you and I are roughly the same age 26. Um, <laughs> and um, if you think back to the lament you probably heard in grammar school and high school, it was the math teachers, oh my God, nobody's learning math. All these kids mm-hmm. are using these calculators or these computers we're all totally screwed. Nobody's going to know how to do math. Look at the world we inhabit today. It is so math dominated. And the reason why is because we can do things we never could have imagined doing in math before because we've enhanced our brain. We introduced a partner in the form of the computer that is natural math language based. It just natively they just natively do it better than we do that the way that they are wired in a literal sense. And now all of a sudden we're talking about introducing tools that allow us to expand the same thing from a vocabulary or communications or imagination standpoint, etc. You you a perfect example. I don't know where to start my essay. Yeah. I don't have any idea what to write about. Hey Chat GPT, here's the question I've been asked. Can you suggest three topics? Did I cheat? <laughs> Only in the most ridiculous sense of the word. Yeah. If I asked Ch- ChatGPT to rewrite something for me so that it reads better, did I cheat? No. Only in the most ridiculous sense of the phrase.
0: Yeah. No, in reality, you, you took advantage of a tool. Correct. Right. That it's is no different. It's, it's, yeah. it's no
1: different than people looking at, you know, how we would construct the pyramids and say, yeah, but you can't use modern technology. Why? Why would you want to do that? Like, yeah. fine, Let's, let's build, rebuild the Empire State Building, you know, without using modern technology. Why? That's stupid.
0: I see what you're getting at. I mean, I, th- I think the, the bottom line is that now our children have the opportunity to stand on the shoulders of a giant. Absolutely and, and, correct. And by the
1: way, that is the history of technology. Yeah. That is what technology actually means. That's why the written word was such an extraordinary force multiplier, right? And the yeah. introduction of movable time and the expansion of the availability of the written word and then the increase in the number of people who could use the written word, what we call literacy. All of these things define and change behaviors because they allow us to stand on the shoulders of giants. If I'm spending yeah, I'm, my childhood figuring out how to carve a road through the American wilderness so that family can transit across North America you know, in a Conestoga wagon pulled by an oxen, I'm not available to figure out how to create something like TikTok. I'm not available to figure out how to create something like a, I'm a, something stupid, you know, um, emulsion blender. Well, who the hell cares about an emulsion blender? Well, well, if you want to try certain types of food, if you want to have a really <laughs> creamy butternut squash soup, yeah. you have to have an immersion blender, have to have these things, right? They each create their own characteristics. I, I've talked with uh, my good friend, Josh Wolf, and I often reminisce about TV shows from our childhood. There was a TV show called Connection by James yeah. Wilton. It was, based off, uh, it was based off a book um, and turned into a series by the BBC It highlighted that all of these things build upon themselves. They're serendipitous. We're just talking about a world 10 years from now where increasingly I'm looking at it, this could be really cool. It's an extraordinary yeah. thing to think about taking a kid with an eighty-five IQ and allowing them to write papers the equivalent of somebody with a one twenty-five I and the person with a one twenty-five IQ is not going to experience the same benefit. Right? They're not going to go from one twenty-five to one you know, the equivalent would be going, you know, up an additional forty points. They're not going to go to one sixty-five. They might go to one thirty.
0: And that's right. a huge improvement. There's there's obviously some very positive um you know maybe potentially gigantic outcomes that will come of it um what does that mean for the economy though what's the, well again it depends right if i mean it grew it up
1: because yeah. we're fighting the last battle um means it's not going to be nearly as good right but if we it, get it is right it
0: potentially deflationary i mean the oh, productivity I, gain well, is, is the,
1: everything is Technology by definition is deflationary yeah. in some ways and inflationary in others, right? right? Figure out a way to use copper to send electrical signals. Is that going to lower the cost of copper? <laughs> no. No. Is it going to lower the cost of meaningfully of a stamped envelope delivered over the postal service? Oh. Yeah. Is it going to lower the cost of communication? Yes. Right? So, Yeah. Technology works in very unexpected ways when we talk about deflation. If we don't incorporate communications and we measure the cost of stamps, envelopes and delivery and the cost of copper in our CPI, then the answer is, no, it's inflationary. If I'm properly defining it in terms of the basket of goods and services that I'm purchasing and the expansion and improvement of by collapse inflation costs, then yeah, it's hugely deflationary. But again, it depends what we measure. I actually just wrote a substack on exactly this. What we measure meaningfully affects the way that we think about that end.
0: I'm gonna have to read that, Mike.
1: Um, yeah, you can uh, pull up my substack. It's linked on my Twitter profile.
0: So profit recession and that profit recession, what does that ultimately mean for equities? It, a neg- that, that's, a, that's a negative for equities. You're you're in a, a near net short position. Yeah. So I mean so I'm you're buying insurance. Negative,
1: I'm, I'm negative on equities for two reasons. One is um, if we see an increase in unemployment, in particular if we see an increase in unemployment amongst those in the plus uh, that dramatically reduces the quantity of capital that's available to purchase marginal equities or any asset for that matter. Right. And um, that plays directly into my theories around passive and how that can influence markets. The second thing that concerns me is that increasingly people are looking at the level of interest rates and saying, thank you very much, that's enough. And if we end up seeing people switch their focus on, um, we end up seeing people switch their focus away from equities and towards, income, and everything ranging from target date funds on down, have increased their equity allocations over the last decade. If we see any reversal of that, that could actually be negative for equities which is kind of the underlying model that I'm focused on. The last thing that I would, would hit on exactly that dynamic um, is this issue of, you know, what type of equities do people end up buying, or what right. do they start to look for out of equities. And it's very hard to imagine, uh, we're looking for the same degree of innovation and disruption that we hold ourselves the narrative last time around. Um, suggests that more money is going to be uh, piling into you know good safe stuff, and less money will be available for this sort of speculative dynamics. Um, that has negative implications for everything from crypto to technology oriented venture capital employment et cetera so those are all things
0: um, what what's your view on on uh, on fixed income?
1: Uh, so, the way I describe it is is that I'm renting fixed income. I think the front of the curve is relatively attractive. I agree. Uh, mm-hmm. Blanchard just came out and said, you know, I think secular stagnation is still here. I think he's broadly correct. Interest rates are likely to remain low. I don't know if they're going as low as they were before. And I um, particularly don't know about the back end because I argue that the Fed, among many other changes that it's done, has now destroyed at least for a sub-segment of the population, the idea that bonds are an enhancement to a portfolio, increasing the number of reasons why people would want to own them. Um, so I, I do think that there's been some meaningful structural damage that's been done to the idea of bonds as an asset class right. playing a certain role in the portfolio. It just suggests to me that fixed income is less attractive on a long-term basis, but on a short-term basis, I think, really, really interesting.
0: Are there any specific areas of fixed income that that you find attractive? I mean, there's a lot of talk that this was going to be this could be a, a big year for fixed income. I think we've already seen a retracement in in long yields um, from, their, Let, from their yeah. So,
1: so so that's exactly my fear is, is that we've seen a significant retracement in the long end. Um, yeah. you know, ten has has gone from you know, almost four and a half to three and a half. Right. Does it go to two and a half? Probably. Does it go to 0.5? I find that unlikely. Do I see the two-year potentially going to one or one and a half? Yes, and so I'm much more interested in the front of the curve. I'm much more interested in the idea of a steepener finally. I've resisted steepening for a very long time. That ended up being the right call. Um, but you know, my, my my basic argument would be something along the lines of, that we're likely to see a rally at the front of the curve. So two-year bonds look really interesting to me. And we'll see some participation on the on the back, um, but I think much less, and so you'll see the curve steepen out. So the other big position, and those two combined for about 40% of the portfolios that I'm um, are reflected in a, in a long two-year and a long steepener framework.
0: Is there anything that we haven't covered that we should have?
1: As I said, I think. The biggest thing people should be aware of is very careful interpreting the data that you're receiving right now. Be very aware that those who are making decisions that have large macro impacts, are looking at data and presuming it's high quality when I think it's actually very low quality. Now, I could be wrong about that. I just want to be clear. I don't think yeah. I am. I think the evidence that I've shown is pretty compelling. Um, and so I would just encourage people to be more cautious and less willing to uh, embrace the FOMO. Dynamic. Longer term, I, I, I do think a lot of critics and a lot of people who are concerned about ultimate response being even more aggressive this next time could very well be. So um, could very well be right. I'm sorry. So like, I'm trying to think through all of these dynamics, but the next stage in the process to me is an acceleration of the deflationary and recessionary By and large, I think we've avoided so far.
0: Inflation is not a linear phenomenon. It you know, um, it doesn't go up and then just and then go down in a linear fashion. There there are events and things that can happen that can cause inflation to be volatile. You know, exogenous things can happen like like the, like the war in Ukraine. Um, but are are we? you know the idea of mmt sort of very quickly went away you know and and, or yield curve control i guess but but what i want to ask you is are we are we sort of doomed to a a you know range-bound period where you know inflation comes back the fed the fed hikes and then cuts and inflation goes away and then the fed you know you know we we return back to this sort of benign low interest rate environment and then inflation rears its ugly head again like it, are we in for a period of of range bound you know inflation expectations from low to high because the fed also has a balance sheet to manage
1: well i, I wouldn't put the because the in there I'm just saying,
0: i think for the um, treasury i mean i'm yeah sorry oh, anyway
1: so so a couple of quick things um, one you know you mentioned mmt and the fact that it's disappeared MMT has not disappeared mmt is actually true it is the right way of describing the monetary system as we have it just as i've said repeatedly mmt is descriptive of the system but it is not prescriptive in other words it tells you how the system is okay doesn't tell you what to do with the, that power right it's the equivalent of you know me saying to the to my Here's the ignition, here's the gas, here's the brake, here's the steering wheel, here's the shifter, and then say, okay, now drive yourself to school. <laughs> like, doesn't work that way. Right? Right. You have to actually take time learning how the system works, you have to feel your way through it, et cetera. Um, the policy arguments behind MMT were always stupid, right? Of course, debt matters. Of course, spending money, too much money matters. It manifests itself in a variety of ways we've seen the impact of spending it in stupid ways. If we hand out money to people for doing nothing, we should not be surprised that they put a strain on the supply chain by buying stuff without contributing. Um, On the flip side of that equation, we're probably in the blowback mode right now where nobody wants to spend money on anything because they're so afraid of what just transpired. And as a result, we're gonna end up in a situation that as I pointed out, I think we could very well even more inflation going forward as a function, But I think the most important thing to remember, and I'm gonna share one last chart to, to finish this off is yeah. that the okay. underlying story is actually one of deflationary conditions relative to the world that we've lived. In. And I just want to orient people to this chart. So the blue line is what's called the ngram or the frequency of the word commodity in English language books. Right now, commodity is a word that dates back to Latin, been around forever. And so to see this type of surge in the use of the word is actually pretty remarkable. The orange line is population growth on a percentage basis across the globe. The 20th century that we came into and have now exited, right, just to be very clear, yeah. from 1900 until 2000, if I'm being very precise about basically 1870 until roughly 2000, um, was a period of unprecedented population growth. Truly in the history of the world, nothing like this ever happened. We went into the 20th century with about a billion people in the global labor force. We came out of the 20th century with about five and a half billion people in the global labor force. And remember what being in the labor force actually means. It doesn't mean that I drive disinflation. It means that I drive consumption, because the only reason I go to work is if I want more. Right. Right. So what we actually had was an uninterrupted period called the 20th century in which global wants exploded. And that was uniquely inflationary in history. We're now coming out of that. If I look at the 21st century and I use reasonable population estimate. The global labor force climbs from about 5.5 billion people to about 6.2 billion people, it's slightly higher than that at its peak around 2040, but ultimately begins to decline towards the back end of the century. And we actually end up in this really weird place where we have almost no population growth at all. How do you have inflation under those conditions? You don't. Mm hmm. Right. We go back to a world in which basically prices remain relatively stable because the quantity of land per capita, the quantity of anything on per capita basis, basically stagnates and technology, which is deflationary, increases our ability to deliver goods and services to that finite population. This is Japan. This is South Korea. This is the world that we inhabited in many ways, beginning in the 1990s around different regions of the world. Right. So I I have a really hard time getting that worked up about inflation in the Ben Hunt sense, except for stupid policy choices where we decide to spend money on really dumb things. And I'm going to say, you know, the most horrific and horrible thing that I can say is is that among those, our policies offer very little benefit to our population. I lied. I'm going to pull in one more chart here. and just show this here, because this is this is also part of some of the stuff we've been working on. Um, so this is looking at, at the dynamics of um, government programs, the net cost of the program versus the age of the recipient or the age of the beneficiary. Age is here on the x-axis. Okay. The net cost is on the y-axis. You'll notice something. Things that are designed for children, those under the age of 20, actually have a positive return to the government. They raise future tax revenues more than the spending. Adult health does absolutely nothing for us. Unemployment insurance does very, very little. Why? Because those who are unemployed are literally using it in lieu of savings that they should have, right? So, right. It does. Absolutely. You know, like we can lay out this type of stuff. We can start to say, what is the intelligent way to spend the money that we have under an MMT framework? But that's not what we did, right? I mean, what we did was we basically jammed up. The other <laughs> thing we're jamming up right now, by the way, New York State just announced that every single beneficiary in New York gets full nutrition. Congratulations. Among the most wasteful wow. things you could have done, factual So you know, th- this is unfortunately the world that we inhabit. We inhabit a world where people are, tend not to be very thoughtful. They tend not to, you know, try to be very quantitative, and that's both an opportunity and and disaster and process.
0: Yeah. So only the items that are in the yellow box are productive, and especially the 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 child well, benefits.
1: Uh, yes. Yes, and no. Right. I mean, everything follows a diminishing marginal return. Right. So, so child health, probably the single best thing you can do. Child education, college, available children, et cetera. Right. These are all things that are meaningful contributors to future benefits and future tax receipts. But if I decide that I'm going to spend an unlimited amount on every single child, that's going to have a diminishing return and eventually will push that program up so that it is not profitable for the government. Right. Figuring out where that is is a challenge. That's what economics should be focused on, instead of a lot of the pontificating that you've heard me do for the past hour.
0: <laughs> but the idea—it was interesting because the idea was being floated around in the campaign by, you, you know, about universal basic income, and, you know, that not that that you, would fall you, into the that would fall into the category way up in the white set, you know, way up in correct. the top. Yeah.
1: Lot, lot, lot of money spent, not a lot of return associated yeah better policy by the way is straight from from mmt's originator warren mosler is something along the lines of a job guarantee that says if you want to participate you are guaranteed the ability to participate right now do employers like that no because Mm -hmm. it means that they have to now compete for those employees with alternate programs as compared to people forced to seek employment which by the way we've turned into a form of indentured servitude Need their jobs in order to get reasonably affordable health care, among other things. Right, so you know we, we need to do a lot of work in balancing the scales. We need to improve the services that are available for children. We need to improve the services that are available for young families to encourage them to have the opportunity to successfully raise children. When we do all that sort of stuff, that's going to really help us a lot. Mike, but it's not doing it yet.
0: Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for your incredibly valuable time. And well, uh, I, I appreciate
1: that you think it's that way. I, I, I <laughs> occasionally don't feel that way, but uh, um, uh, thank you very much. Pierre. Only, you I, <laughs> only,
0: only you would know. What's up? Only you would know. Well,
1: I have better insights. Yeah. Um, anyway, th- th- this is fantastic. I really appreciate it. Appreciate your flexibility. For those who are who, who don't know, I had to push uh, Pierre off from a recording earlier today. <laughs> he was very generous uh, in allowing me to reschedule. So,
0: well, the feelings mutual, Mike. Um, thank you so much.